Section 8 of The Luck of the Dudley Grams by Alice Calhoun Haynes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Wednesday, January 21st. We have formed ourselves into a secret society, Hayes, Ernie, and I. It is called the magnanimous do-withouts, and this is the way it happened. There is never enough to go round at our table any more, though the lowest shelf of the old mahogany bookcase is beginning to show some quite distressing gaps, and naturally Miss Brown has to be helped first and most liberally to everything. What she does not get is just about enough for three, and unfortunately there are five of us. It wouldn't make so much difference, complained Ernie the other evening, if only things could be managed with a little more fairness and system. I look fat, I know, but that does not prevent my growing hungry, and I'm tired of pretending that I have no appetite and being threatened with Robin's tonic. Good gracious, I'd like to know what would happen if Mother did give it to me. I only refused macaroni this evening because I knew Hayes wouldn't, and if we both took it, there would be nothing left for you. Was it very good, Elizabeth? Yes, I admitted. It was nice, dear. And filling? questioned Ernie. Of course, I'm sure Hayes doesn't intend to be mean. He has a cough, and a habit of looking sort of pathetic, which takes awfully well with Mother. But all the same, it wouldn't hurt him to notice and deny himself something once a week, now would it? You must remember the wretched luncheons he has, Ernie, I said. But he eats them in St. Paul's Churchyard, retorted Ernie. A very pleasant spot, and reads the old epitaphs, and goes in to look at the windows afterward. Then she poured a little of Robin's milk into a saucer for Rosebud and set it down on the hearth. No, she soliloquized, it isn't fair, and I'm not going to stand it. The following day it happened that we were to have lamb stew with barley for dinner. It sat on the back of the stove and simmered gently all the afternoon, while every now and then an appetizing whiff would be wafted to the dull, cold nursery, where Ernie, Mary Hobart, and Robin were gathered about the sewing table in the window, playing Old Maid and Tommy Come Tickle Me. The tip of poor little Ernie's nose was quite red, her hands were numb and chilly as she dealt the cards. She did not feel in the least convivial. Indeed, she confessed to me later that judging from the symptoms going on inside her, she supposed she must be starving and had only a few hours more to live. Robin also was restless and inattentive, but Mary Hobart, having lunched comfortably at home, thoroughly enjoyed the game. Let's have another deal, she cried. I've been old maid three times. It's a shameful slander, and I shan't go home till my luck changes. Cut, Ernie. It's getting pretty dark, hinted Ernie, glancing through the window at the beaconing streetlights. Won't your mother worry? Oh, no, returned Mary disappointingly. She knows where I am and expects me to be late. So Robin and Ernie played politely and hungrily on. That stew did smell so good, mmm, till at last the gong sounded and Mary was obliged to go. But even then, Ernie must help her into coat and hat before she could scamper down to join the family in the dining room. "'Will you have a little stew, Hazard, dear?' Mother was asking, as Ernie slipped with watchful eyes into her belated place. I had already been served. There were probably three spoonfuls left in the platter. The case was desperate. Ernie, realizing this, leaned tragically over and gave one swift, violent kick beneath the table. There resounded a smothered shriek from Miss Brown. The warning had miscarried. "'Oh, I beg your pardon,' cries Ernie. It, "'It was hazard I meant to kick.' "'What in thunder?' 
retorted Hayes. Then, in a sudden burst of hurt enlightenment, Ernie, you are a pig. I wasn't going to take any of your old stew. Mother quietly helped the two combatants, apologized to Miss Brown for Ernie's awkwardness, and dined upon dry bread herself. It was later in the kitchen that we gave Hayes a talking to, Ernie and I. He was very repentant, said he really had not noticed the scarcity before, and thought Ernie's idea of a system excellent. So the society was organized. We are to take turns saying we do not care for things, meat, vegetables, or pudding, as the case may be. But would you believe it, this noon at luncheon, Miss Brown actually refused a fish cake, remarking that she believed she was suffering from a slight plethora. Perhaps she is suspected all along. Perhaps we need not worry as we do each Saturday morning. Oh, if this is true, what a trump she has been! For she talks politics and the latest novel in the most natural manner in the world, neither complains nor criticizes, and seems quite oblivious to our many and obvious shortcomings. The prim, generous, tactful darling! Saturday, January 24th. We have had to give Rosebud away, and Ernie and Robin are quite heartbroken. It was because he drank so much of Robin's milk. It seems pretty hard to have to regard a kitten as an extravagance, muttered Ernie rebelliously as she sat in the coal scuttle this morning, clasping Rosebud to an indignant brown gingham bosom. Who's going to tell Bob's, I'd like to know? It's all very well for Mother to say we can't afford it. There are some things that people ought to afford. He'll be very happy with Mary Hobart, dear, I coaxed. And you know he is growing up and has an enormous appetite, and he won't even try to catch mice, except Robin's white ones, and milk is eight cents a quart. Don't make it any harder for Mother. She feels it as much as any of us. Of course, Mary will be delighted, continued Ernie bitterly, and I'll have to lie and say it's because we want to make her a handsome present. Chums are pretty disappointing sometimes, and I can't understand Jeff, Elizabeth. A boy who has three dollars a week pocket money could certainly afford to offer to buy a little cat meat once in a while. Not that we'd let Geoffrey do it, of course, but it would be nice to feel that he wanted to. He used to be so sweet and sympathetic when I was in trouble, and he hardly seems to notice any more. Why, he's not been in to see me for over a week. Perhaps he's busy at school, I answered. I'd be glad to think Jeff was really studying in earnest. Oh, it isn't that, returned Ernie. He is extra tutoring, I know, but he shirks it whenever he gets the chance and slips off to keep some appointment with that horrid Jim Hollister and Sam Jacobs. They are not the kind of fellows he ought to go with. Then, with a swift return to the more immediate and poignant woe, Dear Rosebud, dear Pussy, it's too ridiculous being so poor one can't afford to keep a kitten. That was the part we found next to impossible to explain to Robin. I don't know what you mean he sobbed after the first outburst of violent grief was over. I like Rosebud to drink my milk, Elizabeth. It's good for him. But it's good for you too, Bobsy dear, I said, and you are sick and Rosebud isn't. Mother can't afford to buy more than one quarter day. You know that. What's afford? questioned Robin. It means that we haven't the money. We're poor, dear. Robin looked at me out of wondering, tear-wet eyes. Poor? he echoed. Like the people in stories? Oh, Ellie! Then he sighed and soothed my hand and was very sweet and patient all the rest of the afternoon. He even bade goodbye to Rosebud with fond, stoical precision, patting the kitten on the head and remarking, It is best that we should part. Dear loving little fellow, 
I really believe the information came to him as quite a shock, but fancy is having to be told. When Hayes came up from tending the furnace tonight, his face was even more carolined and anxious than usual. How much is there left? I asked, the inevitable question. If we're careful, it may last till the middle of next week, returned Hazard grimly. Then I suppose we'll begin pawning the spoons. Odd world, hey? Certainly it is hard for Hazy. One can't blame him for occasional bitterness. He is working faithfully and well in uncongenial surroundings, and has not had a cent of pay for weeks, while Jeff, who is showered with the very advantages for which Hayes so ardently longs, seems sullenly determined to make no use of them. Oh, the contrast is cruel. But Mother says the struggle is bringing out a new manliness and self-reliance in Hayes that are a daily surprise and joy to her. Roses again, dear Mother, but something had better hurry up and happen soon. Wednesday, January 28th. He thought he saw a banker's clerk descending from the bus. He looked again and found it was a hippopotamus. If this should stay to dine, he said, there won't be much for us. We did not think it was a banker's clerk, but a boarder. Robin, sitting in the wicker rocker in the window, spied him first. Hurrah, he piped in his shrill little treble. I just know that big fat man is coming here. He's going to ring our doorbell and engage all the empty rooms. See if he doesn't. And the prophecy came true. It was almost like the relief of Lucknow. All on a sudden the garrison uttered a jubilant shout. For, oh, I don't know how much longer we could have held out. It was the day before yesterday that it happened. I had wakened with a start in the early, chill, gray morning, trying dully to remember how many potatoes still remained in the bottom of the vegetable box, and whether there was coffee enough to tide us through the week. It was certain that the coal would not last. Should we begin pawning the spoons then, as Hayes predicted, or maybe Mother's Watch? And suddenly it seemed as if life were not worth living any longer. I did not feel as if I could get up and make my way, candle in hand, down the narrow kitchen stairs to an arctic basement and a sordid round of housework. It was Monday, too. The very thought made my back ache and my head swim. But Mother must not suspect, because I had persuaded her that the washing was not too much for me. In fact, that I rather enjoyed it. And, to be sure, at the very beginning it had not seemed so bad. Novelty lent spice. With the optimism of ignorance, I determined that mind as well as muscles should be exercised. While scrubbing, I would learn French poetry. So, with sleeves rolled above the elbow, the soap suds splashing in my hot face, I rubbed, rinsed, and ringered, murmuring the while, Oh, Richard, oh, bon roi, l'univers abandon. Sur la terre, il n'est donc que moi qui s'intéresse à ta personne. Or, in a more romantic vein, L'obne et ta porte est close. Ma belle, pourquoi sommelier? À l'air où servir la rose, ne vas-tu pas te révéler? But this particular morning, there was no enthusiasm left. My brain was dull, my tongue stumbled and tripped over the most familiar lines. I could not control my thoughts. Hayes had a cough and nothing but a sweet potato sandwich for luncheon. The struggle was too unfair too hopeless, till, actually, I caught myself weeping into the wash-tub, bedewing the family linen with splashing tears. Certainly, things did look black. It was over a month since the Hancocks had left us, nearly two since we bade farewell to Mrs. Hudson. Even Mother was beginning to show the strain. 
She looked worn and worried. As for me, I was tired of the dishwashing, the sweeping, the dusting, everything to be done afresh each day. I had not touched my mandolin for weeks. My hands, then puffed and scarlet, would be stiff and cracked on the morrow. I held them up and looked at them. Which brought the thought of Mita and the old inevitable contrast. That very evening she was going to a party, a pretty informal affair consisting of charades, a supper, and a dance. How carefree her life was, how happily exempt from sordid considerations. She was surrounded by attention, gaiety, admiration. I would love such things too. A great fat tear rolled off the tip of my nose and splashed down on Robin's little striped pajamas. Come, come, I told myself, this is ridiculous. Cheer up, child, and repeat Horatius if you can't remember any French. But even Macaulay's staring lines, with which Hayes and I have heartened each other since nursery days, seem to have lost their magic. Lars Porcina of Clusium, I began, and ended on a sob, till, quite unexpectedly, without the least premeditation, I found myself murmuring instead, O Lord, raise up, we pray thee, thy power, and come among us, and with great might succor us, that whereas through our sins and wickedness we are sore let and hindered in running the race that is set before us, thy bountiful grace and mercy may speedily help and deliver us. It was the beautiful collect for the fourth Sunday in Advent. There seemed nothing incongruous in repeating it above a wash-tub, either. Instantly I dried my tears. Whereas, through our sins and wickedness, we are sore let and hindered in running the race that is set before us. That was the whole trouble. Parties indeed. Attention. What did they matter to a girl blessed with the dearest family in the world to love and work for? My back stopped aching. I thought of little patient Robin upstairs in the big rocker, pretending to play with his friends. How his pale cheeks would flush with pleasure if I could manage to hang out the clothes in time to sit with him for a few moments before lunch. It was worth trying for. And so I did. And it was that very morning, if you please, that Bobsy, looking down the street, uttered his jubilant shout, A boarder! A boarder! His name is Mr. Lyle. He has a square, bland face, a portly presence, and a heavy artillery voice. It was Ernie who dubbed him the hippopotamus. He has rented our three empty rooms at the biggest price we have yet received for them, and he and his wife and his sister will move in on Saturday. Oh, how beautiful! That we should have been so speedily helped and delivered. My brave little Elizabeth, said Mother to me late this evening, you have been such a comfort, such a support. But it is over now, dear. We will send tomorrow for Rose to come back. We'll order furnace coal, and we haven't drawn on our bank account and she kissed me, and I blushed for very shame. For I have not been brave. You know that old diary. At least, not inside. How I wish that I might look back and honestly feel that I have earned Mother's precious praise. Friday, February 6th. School politics have been exciting these last few weeks, though in the stress and strain of home affairs I have had no time to report them. But Ernie has taken them very seriously, and for her sake we are glad the end has come. Yesterday, the sixth grammar grade was promoted, and the prize-winner's name read aloud from the platform. Can you guess who it was? Let me take the matter up where I dropped it. Though naturally much discouraged and depressed by her sudden fall from grace, that fatal composition day, Ernie bravely determined to retrieve her shattered fortunes. 
In this resolve, she was supported by Mary Hobart, Hattie Walker, and a host of other friends. It was nothing but a ghastly accident, they urged, helped along by Lulu Jennings, and though, of course, a couple of failures will pull down your percent, they need not entirely ruin it. You are cleverer than Lulu. Look at arithmetic alone, and the visiting board's problems. She hasn't solved one of them. We can't hold her entirely responsible for that, returned Ernie quaintly. I am quite sure he never intended that they should be solved. But you have worked out answers to them, retorted Mary. Yes, Ernie admitted, a different answer every day. The problems in question were certainly difficult. There were ten of them, ingeniously composed by the visiting board, and it was rumored among the girls that even Miss Horton herself could not obtain a correct solution. They were intended for practice work during the term, on the express understanding that one of the set, no one could predict which, should be included in the final examinations. Naturally, they were the subject of much and anxious discussion. Lulu Jennings, in particular, suffered agonies of apprehensive doubt. Arithmetic is not her strong point. I don't think it's fair, she declared. He just meant to muddle us. The idea of making up such stuff out of his own head. There isn't any key or any way to prove them, and the answers are not even in the back of Miss Horton's teacher's book. I know, because... Because, questioned Mary Hobart, and Lulu dropped her eyes and colored uncomfortably. It was after her public disgrace that Ernie wrote out the entire set of problems in a blank book purchased for the purpose, so that she might study them quietly at home. And how the child did wrestle, shutting herself in the workshop Saturday after Saturday, till finally she discovered the correct solution. There could be no doubt. Worked out along certain intricate lines, the problems could be proved. The next morning, which happened to be the very day before examination, Ernie carried her precious book down to school. Cooey! she yodeled to Mary Hobart, who formed one of a group of chattering girls on the second landing. I have the answers. Not to the visiting board's problems, returned Mary excitedly. Yes, Ernie replied, unable to repress her glee. They are here, tapping the book as she spoke, and they are right too. They prove all those I've had time for. At that moment, Lulu Jennings brushed past the excited pair. Apparently, she was deep in conversation with a friend and noticed nothing. If only she guessed, chuckled Ernestine. Well, for goodness sake, don't tell her, warned Mary the cautious. I wouldn't trust that girl with her own grandmother's plated spoons. Do you take me for a goose? asked Ernie. Let's put our books up, and perhaps we'll have time to eat an apple before the bell rings. I have a beauty in my blouse. So the two girls ran up to the classroom where they found that Lulu had preceded them, slipped their books into their respective desks, and returning to the schoolyard, divided the apple. I wish I could explain the problems to you, Mary dear, Ernie said, but of course it wouldn't be fair. It was quite by chance I hit on the right way. You can imagine my joy. I've only had time to prove the first six, but the others must be right. I'll work on them at noon. However, long before noon, Ernie slipped her hand into her desk to take out the beloved book and reassure herself by a hasty glance through its pages. She owns several blank books, one for spelling, a second for homework, and a third for English. These were successively dragged out and hastily thrust back again. With a queer little shock, it became certain that the book containing the solution to the all-important problems was missing. Ernie was puzzled, startled, but just at first she felt no suspicion. 
Perhaps she had not put the book into her desk, after all. Perhaps she had dropped it on the landing in the hall. It was impossible to communicate her loss to Mary Hobart, who had been sent to the blackboard to demonstrate a proposition. So Ernie raised her hand and asked Miss Horton's permission to leave the room to look for something. The request was granted. Yet a hurried search of the stairways revealed nothing, and the more Ernie reflected, the more anxious she became. She returned to the classroom thoroughly puzzled and distressed, when what was her amazement to discover the missing book lying in plain view on her desk? Ernie took it up incredulously and was instantly conscious of a faint scent of musk. She turned to Mary Hobart, who was just about to resume her seat, having finished her work at the board, and fairly hissed, "'Smell Lulu, Mary! Smell her! Quick!' Mary looked at Ernie in bewilderment. "'I don't want to,' she whispered back. "'Why should I, I'd like to know?' "'Go on,' commanded Ernie, too excited to explain. "'Smell her! You must!' So Mary, with a puzzled and somewhat resentful air, inclined her head stiffly toward Lulu Jennings and began to sniff. "'Well?' questioned Ernie with dilating eyes. "'Well?' returned Mary crossly. "'She smells of cheap perfume, as usual. It's musk today. I hope you're satisfied.' "'Yes,' returned Ernie quietly. "'And so, I haven't a doubt, is Lulu. "'She's copied my problems. I'll tell you after school.' Certainly the evidence seemed conclusive enough, and Mary added still other links to the chain. "'Don't you remember,' she said, "'Lulu was at her desk when we put our things away this morning. "'While we were eating that apple, she must have taken the book. "'And no sooner did you leave the room to look for it "'than she asked permission to put some stuff in the waste-paper basket.' I noticed from the blackboard that she paused at your desk on her way back. She must certainly have returned it then. Yet what was to be done? The affair was entirely too complicated to take to Miss Horton, even if Ernie could have made up her mind to that course. No, she returned to Mary's suggestion. I just won't. I'm no telltale. I'd rather give up all thought of the prize, even if I have worked so hard for it. If Lulu Jennings can enjoy the books earned this way, she's welcome to them. And Ernie thrust the fatal blank book to the very bottom of her school satchel and snapped to the catch with a click. The next morning examinations began with arithmetic first, as usual. Every girl in the class surveyed her paper anxiously in search of the famous problem. It was there, the ninth, one of the four which Ernie had neglected to prove. At first, this was rather a disappointment but having given up all hope of winning the prize, Ernie quickly dismissed the matter and set quietly to work, merely determining to pass as creditably as she could. The moments flew quickly by. Absorbed in her calculations, Ernie forgot all feeling of pique or disappointment, nor did she again think of Lulu Jennings, till, having finished her paper, she passed it under final review, when something struck her eye. She gave a little bounce in her seat and caught her breath sharply, the answer obtained to the all-important problem was different today from that which she had written out before. She remembered distinctly what the other answer was, and went hastily over the work before her to see where the mistake lay. But it was right, it proved. Figure by figure, Ernie followed the intricate proposition, to which, without a doubt, she had at last obtained the correct solution. What had been wrong before she did not know, nor did she much care. Instinctively her glance sought Lulu Jennings, who sat with head bent low above her desk. At the same moment Lulu raised her eyes. 
she did not look at ernie but cautiously toward miss horton who was standing at the blackboard with her back to the class lulu seeing this darted a stealthy hand into her desk and brought out a little roll of paper which she placed in her lap at the same moment throwing her handkerchief over it ernie did not wait for anything further but rising from her seat carried her paper to miss horton's desk no one paid any attention as it is customary for the girls to put up their papers when finished on her way back ernie stopped beside lulu just long enough to whisper i wouldn't bother to copy that it's wrong lulu turned at first white then red she clutched the paper in her lap whether she heeded ernie's warning makes little difference the mark she received was not especially creditable and ernie who passed a nearly perfect examination came out head and was awarded the prize after all just think elizabeth she chortled five dollars worth of books we'll fill up the bottom shelf of the mahogany bookcase again i have my list all made out water babies for robin the conquest of granada for hazard longfellow's poems for you dear and the autocrat of the breakfast table for mother the visiting board read the titles aloud from the platform and said it was a remarkably comprehensive selection but ernie i expostulated what have you for yourself pshaw says ernie i told you i was going to use them for birthday presents my birthday's past and besides i wanted nice additions and i really think i've made the money go as far as anybody could it is very sweet of you honey i said but we will share that longfellow aren't mary and the other girls delighted indeed they are admitted ernie with an ingenious little skip i'm quite the heroine of their young hearts it's lots of fun elizabeth only i'm sorry for lulu it must be horrid for her to look back and think how mean she's been and all for nothing too end of section eight recording by colleen mcmahon